0: All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Crypto 101 podcast. I am your host, uh, Bryce Paul, and I am unfortunately uh, not joined by my notorious compadre, uh, Mr. Aaron Pizzamind Malone. So Aaron, if you're out there listening somewhere in the ether, uh, you're missing out on a great one because we're joined by some uh, some legends of the cryptosphere, uh, an awesome duo uh an awesome group a group of guys and uh basically we're joined uh by two legends in the space adam back uh who is the co-founder and uh ceo of a little company uh, no, a large company called blockstream as well as arnab nasker who is the business leading co-founder of stalker so so adam welcome arnab welcome glad to
1: be here likewise
0: well, well, gentlemen, uh you you have two very distinct backgrounds. So before we dive into you know what you guys are building, let's talk about why you guys are here. So so Arnob, I'll start with you. Give us a little update here on your background and how you found yourself building a company here in the uh the crypto or blockchain or Bitcoin space, whatever you want to call it.
2: Yeah, I think my background comes interestingly from legal side. So I worked as a lawyer in the past and uh I got introduced to Bitcoin, I would say, early 2013. And uh, one thing which really attracted me is the idea that you can have a global currency, the f- first thing, which is not controlled by a central government. And, uh, and the third thing is it's a P2P cash uh, instrument, right? Uh, I'm coming from India, so countries like uh, India, which is kind of, I would say, uh, the country kind of India, you have this high inflation fear always, you have a currency that is also losing its value constantly. I think uh, and, and on the other side, you have the aspect of gold because India is a country where culturally gold is considered to be one of the safest assets. So I understand there's always a look uh, out for an alternative asset and Bitcoin rightly fits in at that point of time. And I realized the value of it as a currency. Later on down the line, I would say, as I went deep into the ecosystem, I understand Bitcoin is just not a currency but much more. And my interest mostly came from the side, okay, if Bitcoin can be used as a means of payment, can be also used as a platform or kind of infrastructure for rethinking the capital markets. And that's where Stoker comes in. And what we are doing currently is kind of recreating a capital markets around uh, the decentralized network like Bitcoin and providing more decentralization into the capital market that we have not seen for years right now.
0: Wow, fascinating! I love it. We're, we're definitely going to dive into uh, kind of what that looks like, bringing stocks and other, you know, traditional, maybe analog assets, and what it looks like to digitize them and, and bring them on the blockchain. Um, and we'll talk about the liquid network as well. But before we do that, um, Adam, uh, you have the distinct, you know, maybe pleasure of, of just a few folks. Who have been cited in the uh, Satoshi Nakamoto white paper for your contributions to proof of work uh, and for your invention of hash cash. So I would love for you to tell us a little bit about your your background and how you you know ended up becoming on the on the on the white paper of the Bitcoin uh, white paper. That's that's pretty crazy.
1: Um, yeah, so I was interested in electronic cash for a number of years. Um, and privacy technology, sort of use of encryption, digital signatures, and related technology for things like Tor, anonymous remailers, and just uh, sort of anonymous peer-to-peer file sharing, decentralized applications, which all date back to you know the '90s or even earlier. Some of these, the original kind of concepts, and so. Becoming interested in that, I I went to find out where other people are discussing such ideas, and that at the time was the Cypherpunks list. So I joined that list, and there's a lot of discussion on there about electronic cash as the kind of ultimate uh, killer app for privacy technology, i.e. if you've got the ability to communicate anonymously, to participate with the internet, and so on you would want to be able to pay for things anonymously too and so that was for many people a very interesting and exciting prospect and there were some interesting technologies already at that time and i implemented a couple of them in like a library uh, called credlib Um, but those systems were a bit centralized because people hadn't figured out how to make uh sort of a decentralized double spend database i guess you know People weren't exactly clear about how to solve the problem because you know, it was an unsolved problem at the time. And so Bitcoin, if you like, uh, finally solved some of those problems that people were grappling with. So, and Hashcash itself was kind of related to that. It was, it was trying to find a way to create a sort of a, solve a simpler problem, which is how to create a cost online, and hence, hence the kind of proof of work concept. In the absence of, you know, being able to tr- make a transferable payment, you know, like a electronic cash system that could be respent, so it was kind of an electronic cash system that couldn't be respent, but you could nevertheless prove to the recipient that you, you know, you underwent some cost to send them a message or participate in, you know, a protocol like creating a name in a centralized name system or something like that. So there are a lot of different use cases. Some of them, you know, a number of them implemented different systems. And yeah, so then, and, and, and actually, a lot of the, there, there was a centralized electronic cash system that did get implemented uh, using a technology by David Chom, um, which was a company called DigiCash. And that actually, you know, everyone was pretty excited to see that working. And they had a demo server, but unfortunately, the company failed financially. And so anybody who held coins, Suddenly found that they couldn't prove they're valid or spend them. And so the centralization was then more easily recognized as a problem, right? We we'd seen, you know, a centralized system, which people were excited about, failed due to being centralized. So then, you know, the discussion turned. This discussion's happened over some years. So it turned to the question of, well, you know how do how do we avoid that fate if we wanna see an electronic cash system and so the obvious thing was oh, well, we have to figure out how to how to stop this you know electronic cash system make it more decentralized and so there were discussions about you know which sound quite current even today right like you know we have gotta you've gotta um broadcast the transactions you gotta you gotta make a decentralized system, but the details were difficult and so it didn't, didn't get implemented so but those uh, several of those systems which people have heard about like b money and BitGold and how finney's RPAL, were all using Hashcash to create coins because you know, that, that was one of the problems with digicash was there basically it was a stable coin right to get money into it proposal was they would work, find a a you know develop a business relationship with a bank and then you would send you know you'd be able to send wire transfer money to the bank and then convert it backwards and forwards so very much like stable coins today um, but if it was to be decentralized how, how that wouldn't that wouldn't work and so that's where people started saying well okay let's let's mine the coins but they still had more open questions they did would have solutions for and now those things were sort of dating from 1998. B-Money and Bitgold and RPOW was uh, actually implemented. B-Money and Bitgold were not implemented, but RPOW was implemented and that was by Hal Finney, um, but it, it was it was also centralized, but using proof of work and uh, different some different ideas. So it was interesting also.
0: So it sounds like um, you're somebody who knows uh, a lot about Bitcoin mining, because Bitcoin mining uses the proof of work algorithm basically to prove that you're burning energy uh, for every transaction that you make. Is that right?
1: Yeah, I mean, well, it's technically a, a set of transactions assembled into a block. But yes, the I mean, Bitcoin uses the proof of work for a num- for multiple kind of interrelated. Properties, uh, which which you know, which are quite cl- quite clever solutions to the problem. I think so. In particular, it it solves a double spend problem. Like you know, if you're just broadcasting transactions in a peer-to-peer system, there's no centralized clock, and clocks are inaccurate. So two people could you know you could broadcast a transaction simultaneously, and there'd be an argument from different people seeing it, which one came first. Different people would have different views, and so there's no one right answer. And so Bitcoin uses the um, proof of work to solve the race condition uh, who came first and also to add finality so that you know when a race condition is concluded, okay, this one came first, that you can prevent people rewriting history basically by making it more costly over time. And the final thing it does is it was, was that original discussion of like, well, how can we create coins if there's no... No bank to send money to, well, there's a costly way to create them. So it it, it behaves a bit like gold mining, but for digital gold.
0: So it sounds like, um, basically, there's a lot of, you know, it's a very important piece of the puzzle proof of work, right? It's very important. And it sounds very valuable. But it also is extremely energy efficient or, or, or energy inefficient, so they say, or energy consumptive. And so I guess yeah. I, I would love just to understand a little bit about your take on proof of works energy consumption, I know it's part of the game, um, but can you give people out there who are just again the average Joe who just turned on CNN or whatever and they they hear oh Bitcoin's you know killing the world and so they they just refute it immediately they're like okay I never wanted to have anything to do with it which I think is a very stupid viewpoint but can you articulate why it's a stupid viewpoint?
1: <laughs> well, I mean t- technically. Bitcoin's proof of work is extremely efficient because it's uh, you know there's there's no you, know, you can't you can't really optimize it if you if you make a you know a more efficient ASIC that's ten percent more efficient the difficulty is going to increase and it's going to use the same amount of energy so it's it's really analogous to mining gold or other ores, which which also consumes energy. So I think the general analogy would be, you know, there was a period in history where gold was like a long period, right? They claim it is 6,000 years or thereabouts, where gold was the primary store of value and means of economic exchange in the world. And I think the argument would be, well, you know, gold, the gold that is above ground that's been mined over the centuries it costs a lot of effort and money and energy to mine it, and it's a very industrial chemical process, right? So I'm sure it's not very uh, green as a footprint even today. <laughs> right. And um, but nevertheless, the you know the value to humanity of having a a means of exchange is very high, right? And it only has to be mined once, effectively, and then you can reuse it. So I think there's a lot of things like that going on with Bitcoin. People tend to, I mean, the media likes to create sensational headlines and so on. But you know, technically, there's no work specific to a transaction. So if if you do you know more transactions, that doesn't really change the amount of work. And at least for most transactions, are not on the chain, right? They're Lightning or they're between exchanges or internal to exchanges and so on. So the actual, you know most of the cost is attributed to the mining and not to the transactions i would say which is the cost of creating new coins and i think ultimately you can't really you know any kind of uh secure money has to have a cost it's kind of intrinsic to it if if there's no cost then it becomes political money and if it's political money well we already have political money we know how that goes right it it gets Subject to moral hazard, and you know when things get difficult, they get tempted to print more, and that makes things worse, and you get we get stuck in this trap. So Bitcoin is trying to find a way of way out of that trap, and I think that's you know if 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 Bitcoin enables the world to solve the um, to to have a better money and uh, make the global economy and people's you know, productive efforts more efficient, that will be far more efficient. I think other, the other perspective is, you know, people like to bandy around confused metrics. But I mean, for example, Bitcoin uses less energy than uh, clothes dryers in the US alone, mm. right? It uses less energy than that. So it's, and that's it's clearly a discretionary electrical energy spend, right? I mean, you can use air, air dryers or closed lines and stuff like that if if people were really concerned about the energy consumption. So I think that's a bit of a a red herring and that it's delivering an enormous amount of value for society. And, And basically everything, you know, society is based on energy too, right? So almost everything, you know, every development in model civilization is related to energy. And you know, the the wealth of nations is is correlated with their energy usage and capacity to produce energy today and, you know, for every year for hundreds of years. So I think that you know, the concept that, that energy is bad or something is, is just disconnected from economic reality. Now, of course, mm. Bitcoin mining is, um, you know, it tends to use low cost energy because it has a, economic imperative to do that. And low cost energy tends to be green or renewable energy because the, with, with any kind of fossil fuel, there's the cost of extraction, refinery and transport. Uh, Whereas with renewable energy, like hydro and so forth, there's no consumable. So it's cheaper generally.
0: Wow. All right. Well, I I, want to come back to some of that stuff, but I'd like to, um, to ask Arnab a quick question here about basically, you know, it seems like Adam is, is, was focused on his early days building digital gold, and you're focused on building capital markets on a new digital gold standard. Um, I would love to know about you know, why you chose of all the different things to, to, to kind of tackle here in the, in the blockchain industry. Why was it you know, tackling capital markets? What was the need there?
2: Okay, it's a very interesting question, you know. As uh, something like um, which, to be honest, it's uh, it's a question I'm answering for quite some years, and now I think it's, it's quite relevant also over here. Is you see yourselves, you know, in the payment industry, right? Uh, the evolution of you know the money and the payment systems. You had the Visa card, Mastercard. You had different uh, modes of payment. The entire payment industry saw a massive shift in the last couple of years, right? From where we started, like I remember, we had these checkbooks, right? The paper based, like uh, checkbooks, you used to call them, right? Or demand draft, where you used to write and fill it and just give it to the bank. From there, you had the Visa card, MasterCard. Now you have the RFID chips, Google Pay, Apple Pay. So you saw a massive shift in the payment industry. But if you see from the capital market side, it did not change that much you know Uh, there's definitely a change happened like earlier i remember i was reading some history of the capital markets Uh, at the end of the transaction there used to be trucks full of i would say documents of the bonds and equity documents uh, or securities in simple sense they used to travel from one broker house to another broker house and one depository house to another depository house this has definitely changed you know but how we record those data, or uh, the middleman that we use them, like you have transfer agents, you have CSTs, you have all these custodians and others, this fundamentally did not change for long. We have added over the years more and more and more and more middlemen in the pretext that more and more risks are there and risk will be reduced because of this middleman. But what fundamentally happened because of all this middleman, you have some kind of blind spots where you don't know if something goes wrong, who is accountable. And there, I think there is a huge role of uh, DLT networks can come in, where it can open up a lot of this capital market processes, reducing a lot of middleman, increasing a lot of efficiency. And that's what I think is quite fascinating to me. And that's actually kind of one of the motivation uh, that made us start Stocker, to be honest. Because imagine like if you have the CSDs right now, or the clearance and settlement houses, these kind of entities, uh, they are actually just doing a record keeping. A transfers some securities to B. A is now reduced in the security. B is now gaining the security. This can be done on a DLT layer. So technically, your CSDS can be the DLTS. That means you don't recover a CSD. So a huge process optimization can, hey, can happen. Can you break
0: down yes. those acronyms for us? Actually, I'm not familiar with them.
2: Okay, this is very interesting. Like when, uh, like when you buy a stock, and this is I think a very common example is when you bought the Robin, like. Remember this GameStop saga that we had this year, right? (laughs) Right. Um, You are not allowed to withdraw your own stocks that you bought from your Robinhood account because Robinhood somehow said, hey guys, sorry, we are down, right? So what happens actually, you may think as an investor that, hey, you know, GameStop is a stock I am owning and the company knows my name and why they can restrict me and how they can restrict me when I want to trade. But effectively, it's not true. You as an investor, when you hold the stocks in Robinhood, you do not hold the stocks. You do not hold the bonds. What you hold is claim towards the broker. And in this case, the broker may be Robinhood. So what you as an investor ultimately has is just a claim towards the broker. And when broker denies your claim or says, hey, you know, I don't want to service you right now, you have nothing, just a bag full of empty tomatoes, let's say, right? Nothing more because it's just a claim. So you don't have the stocks of the GameStop, the stocks are being held usually in some custodian's name, in some other third party's name in a CSD. CSD is here a kind of an entity that keeps a record of who are holding the stocks. It's kind of somebody who is managing your journal for you, right? And this entity can be technically the entire DLD because what DLD does the best is creating a record of the ownership. And that's what I think uh, what we can use it for, and it works more efficiently and more cost-effective way.
0: And, you know, I should have asked this up front. Gentlemen, how do you know each other and in what capacity do you work together?
1: So we met through uh, respective services at companies. I think we were introduced by somebody else, but Liquid, which is a, a sort of Bitcoin layer two that Blockstream is one of the main developers of. Is, is a kind of smart contract and settlement layer two for Bitcoin, allowing users to issue assets other than Bitcoin, like stable coins, securities, bonds and so forth. And so, and then there's this uh, new, newer concept called a security token and uh, so-called STO. And um, an STO is quite different from an ICO So an ICO is generally, in some ways, uh, unregistered, unlicensed, maybe illegal security offering, whereas the STO is a fully regularized security offering. So it recognizes its security, obtains appropriate licensing, and OnApp's company, Stocker, provides those kind of services. And so in in Blockstream's case, we have a a particular mechanism in Liquid, which is a kind of add-on called Liquid AMP. Uh, for um, managed assets. And um, it's uh, it relies on a, a third party to indicate whether or not an address is uh, authorized for a different, given asset type. And so Stocker fulfills that role for a number of liquid issued securities, including Uh, one issued by Blockstream, which is the BMN, Blockstream Mining Notes.
0: Fascinating. So it sounds like um, there's quite some synergies here, and perhaps soccer is a marketplace, would that be fair to say, for all sorts of liquid
2: assets? Yes, I would like to give one quick context. I think uh, Adam was quite humble on that. I think this uh, mining bond that Adam mentioned, I would say, is one of the the most... uh, Widely known and kind of interesting asset class out there in the market, which happens to be issued in complete digital form. And and just the background is how Stalker came to know about uh, Blockstream and Liquid. Definitely, everybody knows Blockstream. Yeah, this is not something that mm-hmm. is uh, new anymore. But what Blockstream did is very interesting, and it's very hard to create any smart contract structure on Layer One of Bitcoin a liquid come kind of a solution where you can create those smart contract structures and can create an asset. And that's what Adam mentioned is the AMP asset, right? So when Stocker fits into this narrative is, Stocker is a primary as marketplace. So we are kind of, think of it like as an Amazon marketplace, where different kinds of alternative investment assets, be it you know, a bond in a mining project, a Bitcoin mining project, a bond in a music fund, it can be equity of a gaming company, So all this kind of different alternative assets can be issued on Stalker. Investor can come on Stalker, create an account, do all the KYC AML, connect the liquid wallet that is the non-custodial wallet in which you can hold those securities and you have the full ownership and nobody like Robinhood can actually deny your service. Um, You can actually buy those assets on Stalker. So that's one side. The other side, Stalker also support issuers, in this case, like Blockstream and other companies to issue digital securities. So we help them to manage their investor register. We help them to create the regulatory vehicle structures in Luxembourg, as well as we manage their payment flows on the platform. So these are kind of interesting services that Stocker provide as a platform to kind of two-sided parties. On one side, you have the investors, on the other side, we have the issuers of those digital securities.
0: You know, you guys, you mentioned something funny, or not funny, but that that reminded me of um the volcano bond, the El Salvador volcano bond, which to me, when I was reading about it, it, it was blowing my mind. Um, and it was so, so Samson Mo. Uh, Samson Matt has been on the show before a couple of times, uh, but we haven't been able to talk to him about the volcano bond, which I believe he uh, was was part of the kind of the, the brainchild behind that. But but would one of you guys be able to tell our viewers about what the volcano bond is and why it's so significant?
1: Uh, yeah, sure. So it's another liquid AMP asset. It's uh, not not um, issued yet, but it will be issued by the El Salvador government. So it's a kind of a government bond and a number of governments issue bonds as a form of um, kind of country level borrowing to basically fund some development in the in the country, like infrastructure or ultimately to, to try and create wealth and prosperity and, you know, therefore collect taxes and be able to pay off the bond. And so typically they issue, you know, they, they tend to be long-term and they're uh, typically bought by institutional investors. But this one is interesting. So as you probably know, El Salvador was the first country to add Bitcoin as a second legal tender. And so uh, we discussed with them the idea of uh, issuing a bond and we put to them a few different variants of kinds of bonds. But the one we thought was most interesting was one that had a, a Bitcoin component. And so the economics are such that half of the money rate, so that they, they're looking to, what, what they've announced so far is that they're looking to raise a one billion dollar bond, and half of the money is would be used to buy Bitcoin, and the other half will be used for. Uh, they've indicated building power infrastructure, the the so called uh, volcano power, and potentially Bitcoin mining also on on that power. But you know the power could also be used for just general use in the country, and. Um, then the other part of the the Bitcoin part is that it is a ten-year bond. So after five years, they start dollar-cost selling the Bitcoin on a quarterly basis, and the first you know the first five hundred million of the billion would be kept to uh, repay the principal of the loan, right? The Bitcoin part of the loan, and. If, if the price is high enough that you know, the, the cost average selling increases beyond that, then that is split evenly between the bondholder and the government of El Salvador. So in other words, if, if Bitcoin price appreciates a lot, El Salvador will get you know, uh, uplift in value and the bondholder will get uplift in value. And in addition, there's a normal bond component, which is it pays a 6% coupon or annually as well.
0: Many of you have probably heard uh, about how the market for collectibles, including NFTs, has gone totally crazy over the last year. And the problem, though, is that even if you wanted to invest in some of these assets, the price tags are simply out of reach for most investors. But there's actually solutions to this problem. And I wanted to tell you about one of those right now. So this podcast is sponsored by Otis. Otis is an investment platform that makes it possible for almost anyone to invest in shares of cultural assets. So here's how it works. You download their app and you sign up for free. They have over 100 items available for you to invest in, from rare collectibles like sports cards, comics, and video games, to NFTs, contemporary art, and even rare sneakers. Shares usually start around ten bucks plus they add new assets every week. Then you can earn a potential return if Otis sells the underlying assets for more than the price the item was dropped at or by selling your shares to other Otis members on Otis's real-time trading platform. So some of the drops from Otis are amazing. These uh, things are like sports cards and memorabilia, uh, like a ticket to the Kobe Bryant's Final NBA game or a bunch of boxed, never open vintage video games like the original Game Boy Pokemon games. And as a music lover, to be honest, I was excited to see uh, an actual first generation, brand new first generation iPod. So if products like this sound up your alley, well, right now Otis is offering listeners of this show a free share when they fund their account. And all you have to do is go to with. Otis.com slash crypto 101 and sign up to get your first share for free. That is with Otis, W I T H O T I S dot com slash C R Y P T O 101. For more risks and disclaimers, go to withotis.com slash legal slash disclaimer and please check out the show notes uh, for those as well. Wow. And do you see that this is going to be a trend? Um, Do you think that um, basically El Salvador was the tip of the iceberg here and will, you know, more.
3: Hey, guys, TiVo here to tell you about the UFi video lock, a smart lock, a 2K camera and a doorbell all in one. That's E-U-F-Y, Video Lock, or visit ufeofficialcom slash video lock. Again, that's E-U-F-Y, Video Lock. Videolock Video Lock. Get complete control over your front door.
4: What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify?
0: Bonds come similarly in, in in the form of, you know, from institutions kind of, you know, selling bonds or from other government agencies selling bonds uh, in such a manner?
1: I mean, I think it's, um, I think a lot of people will be watching it. And certainly we've had interesting discussions with uh, other parties who who are holders of I mean, subsequently, we've had discussions with um, institutional holders of the previous tranches of bonds that were issued, you know, that are unrelated to Bitcoin, um, and you know, it's very interesting to hear their thoughts on whether they would buy the bond, you know, buy the Bitcoin-related bond, and what what they think of it, right? Um, and so, I think the 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 buyers, the types of buyers, may be different with this bond as well because. You know, it's, it's being offered in a digital format and the bookmaker is Bitfinex, a cryptocurrency exchange. So it, it may be that the buyers are much more, you know, crypto owners and less institutions. Um, but nevertheless, it's, it's interesting for, you know, buyers of bonds and other countries that issue such bonds. And I think one Aspect of the current economic backdrop makes the uh, bond, you know, extra interesting. Which, which is the, you know, due to all the quantitative easing around COVID, and you know, the state of the world's economy, the interest rate, the sort of prime or base interest rates are very low. In some cases, negative, and some long-term government bonds are actually paying negative interest rates from from high credit rating countries. And so, you know, the types of institutions that buy bonds are often sort of pension funds, entities with a kind of responsibility to uh, preserve value and develop a return over a long time frame. And so, you know, they have a problem now, which is the bonds they may be, Obliged to own, like maybe they're not allowed to just hold cash, are actually losing money in real terms. I mean, so maybe directly in a negative interest rate, but certainly in inflation adjusted terms, which is ultimately what matters. So I think as people get short of ways to get a return on investment, they start looking at more adventurous things, alternative assets. And so the Bitcoin bond is, you know, a, a new type of institutionally accessible bitcoin related instrument I mean if you look if you look at ways institutions can gain exposure to Bitcoin it's usually difficult for them to just physically buy Bitcoin but they can buy Bitcoin ETFs and now they can buy this bitcoin related bond so it's a kind of partial you know because it's there's only a Bitcoin a portion that's in Bitcoin but it's it's some you know potential bonus dividend relating to Bitcoin upside as well as a you know an interest rate
2: i think one interesting aspect i will mention i think what adam uh, rightly mentioned here is uh, this will open up kind of an opportunity for other nation states which are not as big as us or germany or uh, european countries which are looking for always to borrow money from world bank and some other institution and this will be very interesting because the moment this el salvador bond kind of hits a success uh, Story This will be adopted by a lot of countries, which mm. I think this will be a global phenomenon. I think sovereign countries adopting for the sovereign bond this kind of security tokens will be a fascinating to- story to tell in 2022 and beyond.
0: You know, you, you mentioned um, the World Bank. You, who are these guys, right? What's the World Bank? What's the IMF? And what's their role in kind of the uh, the global economy? And I, and I see Adam smirking here. Uh, <laughs>
1: Well, I mean, I'm I'm not actually an expert in the, in those things, but I think um, it's you know they're quasi governmental or international organisations that have funding from from governments to issue debt to lower credit rating countries, basically, and so as well as you know the free market of institutional buyers buying bonds. When when countries get into a distressed situation, sometimes the free market is not willing to lend because of the risk perception. And so, you know, some of these intra government organizations are able to take more risk and you know they may indeed not fully recoup the investment. But I guess their their point is that it's in the sort of global economy's interests to you know, not not have countries flounder. I mean, of course, they get they get some criticism because, you know, usually the money they lend has strings attached to it, like they'll try to impose economic policy and financial prudence measures, which, you know, arguably may or may not be in the borrowing country's kind of economic interest because it sort of optimizes their economy to repay a debt in a foreign currency. Potentially, denom- potentially denominated in a foreign currency and if the exchange rates move the wrong way that that could make it very difficult for them to actually escape from the distressed debt situation now because some countries don't have that problem like El Salvador particularly i think their their credit rating is not so bad and they their their local currency is the dollar now right since since uh, some years ago so you know at least they would be borrowing in the same economy, the same currency that's used in the economy.
0: Now, Arnab, I have a, a quick question here about um, essentially this idea of DAOs, right? You know, the decentralized autonomous organization um, that kind of the Ethereum clan has uh, popularized. Now, is there another word for it or another version of it on the uh, on kind of the BTC liquid network
2: sort of world? Yeah, I think today, if you see the tweet from a chat, it's rightly summarized, right? You don't own Web3, the VCs and LPs do, right? Mm -hmm. That's kind of, so any of our DAOs, and these are pre-mined tokens, uh, DAOs are being owned by some LPs and VCs, right? Uh, In Bitcoin, I think, okay, this is kind of very interesting. What do you mean by DAO? Decentralized Autonomous Organization. In the best case scenario, if you are writing an academic paper or academic tweet, you will mention that every decision has been validated by every participant of the network. That means every participant of the network has effectively voted. But what effectively happening in most of the DAOs are, you are giving this, or you can call it delegating your right to vote to few individuals and a few individuals then access anyways, the voting. It's the same paradox situation comes in that handful of people again decides and this is a fundamental, I would say, problem which uh, even DAO is facing hard time to you know address. So I would say in the Bitcoin without even DAO, things are quite decentralized in a lot of layers. Definitely security token, I don't claim it's a decentralized because it's meant by a company to raise finance and they're very transparent how they're using it. So that decentralization is not the selling narrative here. But if you see the other aspect of how the technology functions is quite decentralized in the sense. And this you can see as a right example is when the Chinese mining went down and the Chinese, you know, uh, this fallout happened in the mining. Hash rate went down, but at the current level, I would say a few days, a few weeks back, we had the new all-time high in the hash rate. So somehow the market found its own uh, correction and it went up. That shows how decentralized the network is behaving, to be honest. A major country like China couldn't take it down. So that's kind of interesting uh, thing to say. Uh, so for me, I think DAOs are still, to be honest, uh, an experimental tech, which need to be observed. It's not I would be very scared to use it for a real use case at the moment, but it's much more can be. You can put some ape uh, JPG pictures or those kind of stuff and play with that. But I don't see that uh, institutional funds or hedge funds and asset managers will use it immediately on uh, that serious level.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think some of it is let down by bad technology. So, you know i mean not to single out ethereum because these problems pervade multiple sort of alternative currency blockchains but i mean as as i read it ethereum had lost just checking it's real yes seven seven point seven billion dollars to thefts and um yeah smart contract flaws this year alone 2021 and of course there are many previous years of such results. Um, so that's, you know, that's about sort of safety. And I think, you know, for people from the Bitcoin technical background, they look at smart contracting as a high assurance thing where they don't want to have, you know, life failures and hacks and things. So, and I mean, that that's, so Blockstream has a, smart contracting on liquid which is basically bitcoin scripting plus some extensions and we also have a next generation smart contracting called simplicity which will be added to liquid pretty soon and that takes a more security first approach and the things that make it security first are that you know it doesn't store a lot of data in the blockchain it tries to simplify And actually, simplicity has formal proofs for so that you can sort of uh, prove things about the contract. You know, sort of make a predicate like this: this is the only way this funds could be spent, and prove that's true. For example, Um, and so that's and 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 in a Bitcoin-like model where you know there's a there's a clause or a predicate on a coin, and that defines where it can be spent or not. And there are you know. I think the the concept of uh, capital formation and contracts governing that now i guess I guess the problem is if there's sort of discretionary management and you know physical activity needed to fulfill that, it's ultimately controlled by humans, and you know they're making a product, they're selling it, and if if that product makes money. You know, you're relying on those, on that group of people's management and goodwill to actually give you your share of the profits if, if the product sells, right? So today, I think it's probably fair to say that none of the um, uh, sort of ICOs have successfully made a product, so there were never any profits to share. But I think it's also the case that, you know, if, if they had made a profit, there's no, you know, it's, it's down to human good behavior, that they would actually share the profits with you. So, you know, from from our perspective, it's a bit hard to see how those could usefully be decentralized because on the one hand they're trying to say that they are not a security, and on the other hand they're operating a, exactly like a classical security, right? Which is there's an expectation of profit, there's a management team, and so on. So, that's tricky, but I think there are other sort of simpler scenarios where you could have some uh, sort of decentralized capital formation, and one one of those would be a sort of capital pool for liquidity for uh, market automated market maker or something. There's there's one of them on liquids um, by BitMatrix, and so I think that kind of is is narrowly enough defined that it can be sort of algorithmically operated, and it's not about discretionary decisions, right? It's about um, you know, the the system operates, it collects a certain premium on the trades and it pays the premium pro pro rata to the liquidity holders. And so that's, I guess, simple enough that it can be usefully decentralized. Yeah.
0: You know, Arnob, could you talk a little bit about some of the, I don't know, whatever the word is for the opposite of optimized, but like basically right now, all of the liquidity throughout the world is pretty fractured, right? You know, you got the New York Stock Exchange, you got the Chicago Stock Exchange, you got Singapore, London, whatever, right? All across the world. But like, wouldn't it be great? And wouldn't there be some optimizations to be found if we had a centralized order book for liquidity, um, kind of globally? And is that kind of something that might be on the roadmap, if you will, uh, for the liquid network or for Stocker? Or is that just kind of a pipe dream?
2: Yeah, I think this is very interesting uh, times we are in, right? Uh, as I mentioned to you, you cannot imagine in the current situation that you can take out your stocks from one broker to another broker in a matter of minute. It takes sometimes months, right? And uh, with the liquid structure, and I think with the liquid network specifically here, you can imagine a real-time and very, I would say, realistic expectation that you can. You don't like Stalker as a platform. You don't have to hold that on Stalker, right? You can take it to your green wallet. You go to exchange like Bitfinex and you can trade. You don't like Bitfinex, fine. Leave that exchange. Go to some decentralized exchange and trade. You don't like them, fine. Leave all of them. Hold it in your green wallet as a non-custodied asset. This right or option to do that doesn't exist in the today's world, right? And that creates a lot of barrier. The moment you remove that, and this is, I think, what you can do with the liquid assets, you can just simply use your green wallet in which you are holding the digital securities as your custody. You don't require a custodian solution. You can be your own custodian. That's kind of critical here. And then you can add liquidity to a DEX platform. You can add liquidity to a normal uh, secondary market, which is regulated, centralized secondary market. Or you can also go to some traditional stock market, which maybe in future provides some support for liquid assets or liquid securities. Because fundamentally, these security tokens, these are not something different. These are the age old securities. Only it happens to be in digital environment. That means the securities are itself recorded on the DLT or the liquid server here. So that's, I think, uh, is quite interesting aspect. So it's not something a new token or new rights like an ICO token or something. It's kind of the age-old securities, just it happened to be digital. So I would say that this kind of uh, automatization or this kind of uh, processes that makes real-time ownership management simple will provide more liquidity in the future in this kind of markets.
0: So Adam, I have a question. I just wrote it down here, but it kind of made me think, um, you know, is there going to be a world where fiat currencies um, all trade kind of on the liquid network? You know, all of Forex kind of happens on that. Or, you know, are you kind of trying to build and and optimize for a world where only kind of Bitcoin is is the only denominator or the two Um, kind of worldviews even competing?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that it, I mean, it's not clear what the far future will hold, and certainly, shifting Amos uh, book the Bitcoin standard is uh, an interesting, you know, long term potential. But certainly, in the short term, it's it's difficult to for countries to, you know, completely move away from local currencies because, you know, you you see the side effects when countries are sharing a currency, but not economic policy, like uh, Greece in the Eurozone, for example, right? That normally in past recessions, Greece's local currency would uh, depreciate versus the surrounding currencies, and then their exports would, you know, it would devalue by like 50% or something, then Greek produce become very cheap, and they'd be able to export their way out of a problem. And with a with shared currency, they can't do that. And so they kind of get stuck. And so you you could wonder if something similar would happen on a on a Bitcoin standard. You know, it would be dangerous to borrow money denominated in Bitcoin, and different countries having different economic policy might have difficulty sharing Bitcoin as a currency. Um, but I think you know the, there are certainly multiple stablecoins on Liquid, and in stablecoins were. Created to uh, make it easier to move f- fiat currencies around for trading Bitcoin, basically. But you know they've they've developed a bit of a life of their own, and some people actually use them as as a way as cheaper, faster wire transfer, even for non crypto related things at this point. And so you know there's a possibility to do that on Liquid. It has um, Tether and a number of other stablecoins, and I guess the interesting thing about Liquid for stable coins compared to other networks is it's fairly fast, like transactions happen in a minute or two, and it's confidential. So nobody apart from the sender and the recipient can see how much was transferred or even what was transferred potentially. right? It could be Bitcoin, it could be Tether, it could be something else. So yeah, I mean, I think that stable coins and stocks and bonds and Bitcoin are all kind of interchangeably tradable uh, on liquid.
0: Fantastic. And now, you know, in, in regards to Stalker, for kind of just the average Joe who's listening and they're like, hey, man, I've been, you know, scammed out of an ICO. I lost my, my shirt on this one altcoin trade. I'm done with it. I just kind of want a different world. Right. And so, would you say Stalker might be, uh, you know, the
2: place for them to check out? And if so,
0: how do they kind of leverage the, uh, the platform?
2: So, our main, I would say, the belief and how we also try to create the platform in such a way that investors understand the value of diversification, right? It's kind of the age old mantras or kind of uh, the gospel of investment that you do not mm. put all your eggs in one basket, right? You diversify, right? Uh, even Ray Dalio today mentioned that he doesn't uh, hold only USD, he's also holding Bitcoin, right? Because yeah, he he did diversification say that, he is did. important, right? So, so, he mentioned it. It's a very interesting thing to see, like it's a diversification is key. And that's how Stocker is trying to create as a platform. You come it as a platform, you come on Stocker, you create an account and you can choose based on your risk profile, based on your understanding, based on what you feel like, you know, or what you really know, actually. And then you can create a portfolio. So you want to get exposed to mining. And this is, I think, what we did with Blockstream here. Uh, Mining was for a long time was restricted to for a very handful of companies, right? You require a huge amount of capital to enter, huge amount of capital when I'm talking about this 5, 10 million or something. Even if you're a high net worth individual, you don't want to deploy so much capital maybe in mining. But with the Bitcoin mining bond, we allowed an investor to invest as low as 200,000, which is not that you know small amount, I understand but what it can actually uh, make accessible for a lot of people who doesn't want to deploy 5 to 10 million at one go, right? That still makes it accessible. And after that, you hold it, you can still hold at a smaller denomination of 0.01. That means it still makes it a little bit uh, accessible uh, further down the line. But these kind of assets, what Stocker is trying to bring into the market, we're currently all trying to find out a right way to bring different kind of music assets and uh, to to mention to this on this point, music is a non-correlated asset, right? So it, it doesn't get impacted easily by your, your, your day-to-day market uh, fluctuations, right? You will still listen to the same music in Spotify if the market dra- drags down completely, or Maybe even uh, listen more. <laughs> maybe you'll listen more yeah so technically it's a non-correlated asset and our aim is to bring this kind of alternative investment assets like equity bonds music funds we recently launched also kind of very interesting stablecoin fund on the platform you can also bring this mining fund and you can also choose maybe in future what i think we would like to also do that you can choose your mining investments say hey you know as Adam mentioned, you know, the civilization requires energy to sustain. So it's not something bad that we require energy. The question is how we generate that energy. So some investor may think, hey, you know, I want to just invest in some mining bond that is specifically using energy from these specific regions or maybe, you know, this uh, our kind of. Uh, green mining environment or something so you can create a portfolio so this is kind of our aim is to create a platform where investors can create more diversification and they get more opportunities to in simple sense to create their wealth right because wealth creation is something which uh, should be accessible by everybody and this current inflation rate where i definitely believe that it's double digit right now it's Mm -hmm. definitely not a single digit inflation we are in and it's definitely not a transitionary inflation, right? It's kind of permanent and we have to live with that. So we need more and more alternative assets where we can diversify our income strategies and also diversify our risks.
0: Wow, I love it. There's so many just avenues I want to dive down. And I know we're we're coming up against time. Um, Adam, I've got you know two more questions here while we, you know, one one thing is just I get it a lot from people that are just brand new into the Bitcoin kind of world, and they say, well, hold on, hold on. About this whole mining thing, you're, you're telling me that by 2030, you know, 99.9 percent of the mining of Bitcoin is going to be done. There's not going to be, you know, any Bitcoin left to mine. Well, then why will Bitcoin miners um, still, you know, be incentivized to process transactions on the network? Why will they still stick around? And I'm like, oh, well, that's because uh, the fees, right? There's going to be a fee market, and the fees should be enough to cover it but then they're like, oh, okay, I guess. But what what is the right answer? What happens when all the Bitcoins mine?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think there are a couple of answers. One is that the fees become a bigger uh, percentage. So looking on this Clock Moody dashboard, fees are currently 1.13% of the Bitcoin reward. And that, that varies a bit based on you know, when trading gets busy, the fees tend to go up and then it gets to be a bigger percentage. So fees are one supplement. Um, and of course, like the historically, you've got the halving every approximately four years where you get half the amount of reward per block. But historically, the Bitcoin price is appreciated far faster than two times every four years. And so obviously done in the future, but prospects look like, there won't be a, um, a kind of security deficit for miners to be paid to pay security for bitcoin transaction processing for some decades right so it's kind of far off problem in that way in that sense probably and then there's the fee story and i think the other thing is that you know a lot of money related technology is quite insecure And, you know, if you look at like banks, there's thousands of banks, any, any one of them could uh, be, you know, have, have be hacked and um, that, you know, but basically what I'm saying is that people need money to work and they're willing to tolerate far less secure technology than Bitcoin. So Bitcoin is providing a lot more security compared to the status quo. And, you know, so another, I think, perfectly plausible way for Bitcoin security to work is for um, enough individuals and companies to mine it as a cost of doing business, right? You know, they own a certain amount of Bitcoin, they do a certain amount of mining, or their business relies on Bitcoin transaction processing, so they they develop... You know they get revenue from their day-to-day business involving Bitcoin transactions, so they distribute a certain amount back to mining. And you know, of course, it's different to the way it works today, but that doesn't mean it can't work. And I'd say a loose analogy is the way the peering arrangements work on the internet. So, you know, as a as an individual internet user, you pay your, you know, your your internet, your DSL, your cable, however you get your internet you pay your bill, but between ISPs, that's that's not how it works. They, they agree to, you know, uh, sh- bridge each other's data backwards and forwards, and so there's those kind of loose arrangements. So I could see something like that working for Bitcoin processing and mining also, but, you know, I think, it, I think it's a long way off, and so I'm not, you know, particularly worried about it. I mean, I think the other just general broad point is that, you know, if, if there is a large financial interest for Bitcoin to work, the market will find a solution ultimately, right? I mean, in people go. value Bitcoin and they want it to be able to continue transacting it securely, they're going to, they're going to find a solution to that because <laughs> that would be, you know, already that would be an enormous incentive today. And, you know, in decades time, that might be, you know, much more incentive.
0: Wow. Love it. Um, now last question for you. Just generally, you know, if this is the first podcast that somebody had kind of stumbled upon in their crypto journey, they're like, wow, my mind is blown, feels overwhelmed. Like, what's kind of the one word of advice from a veteran of the industry to a quote unquote newbie?
2: Okay, I think the first and foremost, I would say, read the Bitcoin white paper, right? Uh, it may go quite technical, it's a like you know from the third or second or third page onwards but i personally feel the first page itself its yeah maybe we already have the person who have written that but still <laughs> i'm telling that that's kind of uh something which really you know made me understand and I, I have read it a number of times and i think this is definitely you should read the second thing is understand money right understand money and how money works uh this is being not taught in the school, right? Even if you have done a PhD in some biotech industry or something, sometimes, you know, we are not taught about what money is. So when you understand, when you read that white paper, I think this is definitely, I think, something that will trigger you and how kind of uh, money is, uh, Working in real sense. So that's one thing. The second thing definitely is Bitcoin, right? This is kind of the guardian, you can call it central bank, reserve bank, what, however you call it. That's actually the fundamentally Web3 is, right? If you call it, there is something like Web3, right? So understand what Bitcoin is before you jump into anywhere. You want to burn your hand in some kind of ape-looking JPG files or something. Just try to understand what Bitcoin is. Do the transactions. uh, Try to understand how it works. Try to, you know, uh, learn more about it. I think that's uh, something will stay with you for your generation, next generation, and maybe down the line to your future two, three generations
0: it. And Adam, last question for you um, of all the people that you've come across in your time here on earth, um, who is one person that's really inspired you and somebody you look up to, whether it's, you know, morally or technologically, just somebody that's made probably you would say the largest impact on you.
1: Hmm. Good question. I guess um, that's I mean, there's a number of, Key pieces of applied cryptography that enable a lot of things, and so there are you know dozens of cryptographers who invented early stage things that became pervasive and necessary building blocks for you know much of the online world security kind of thing. And in terms of um, people I liked discussing things with and brainstorming, uh, I thought I thought Hal Finney was always a, a good guy. He didn't. You know, he was always innovating, always trying things out, always tinkering. And, you know, the, the cypherpunks, like other online discussion forums, was kind of rowdy where people would be arguing about silly stuff. And he never seemed to get pulled into the argument. He would just keep uh, trying things out and innovating and interject a. More technical or philosophical point, but stay out of the argument. So that's a it's a useful skill set, I would say. I'm not not saying I'm particularly good at that skill set, but I thought it was uh, you know constructive. Always, I think that's that's the point. Wow.
0: Awesome, thank you, gentlemen, so much for your time. Um, we hope to have you both back. Uh, on the show in some capacity together separate whatever it may be guys uh godspeed thank you so much for everything that you've done for our industry and what you continue to do Um, i really enjoyed this discussion
1: all right thank you thank
2: you thanks for having us